0: Good
1: morning, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Uh, Chris coming at you with another solo episode. Uh, we're going to do part two of Rudolf Steiner. We're just going to round out uh, round out the Rudolf Steiner book that, uh, that I gave you the first part of last week. Um, kind of seemed like there was some overlap. Uh, the, the first half of the book was... Um, Well, it was a lot like the last half of the book, but the last half of the book had a lot more detail in it, so I thought it was worth sharing with you, anybody who might have been interested in uh, Steiner's approach to the occult and the esoteric. I'll tell you what um, surprised me about Steiner. After I've had a chance to think about it a little while, I think the thing that I find so interesting is that in this field, this, this field of the occult, um... I guess I didn't expect to see people discussing mystical experience. Um, I don't know why. I don't know why. I mean, obviously, it's very closely connected to religion. Uh, It's very closely connected with ritual. When I think about the occult, oftentimes um, ritual magic comes to mind. Um, Neo-pagan folks come to mind. Um, You know, the the Wiccans of the world and the neo-pagans of the world um whatever the, those folks do for their own um spiritual uh rituals uh the church of satan comes to mind and i don't i don't mean any disrespect by that when i when i when i bring that up in the context of the occult i just mean these are the kind of things that come to my mind um also things like séances and uh divination you know casting lots or bones um reading tea leaves, you know, all kinds of things like this. Uh, They're really cross-cultural. We see these sorts of, I don't know if you want to call them superstitions. I think that's probably disrespectful, so maybe I won't. Um, But that's the kind of stuff that came to mind. I never thought, and obviously that's all connected to religion and spirituality, and, you know, if you think that If you think that there's magic in the world and that you can do a spell and cause some effect in nature or on some other human being or on your own future, if you think you can read the future or divine, you know what I mean? If you think any of that stuff is possible, then you must believe that there are supernatural attributes to experience. You must imagine there are supernatural forces in the world that are either part of you or maybe, um, you know, can be manipulated by you. These are all prerequisite ideas to any of the occult stuff that I just brought up. And so there's obviously some spiritual overlap uh, between, you know, ordinary religious people, philosophers that are interested in uh, religious ideas, um, and these occult type people. Um, I don't know why I was so reluctant to put them in the same camp. I guess ignorance, man. I guess I'm just going to be quite honest with you. I, I didn't spend much time on I didn't consider it right and what I was surprised with with Steiner is somebody who's talking about practices that can that can be done to develop occult faculties within yourself to develop senses and experiences that our potential for folks to have some sort of spiritual reality, but we're just sort of blind to because we don't exercise the right muscles. And Steiner says, look, if you exercise the right muscles, you're going to be able to not only perceive, but participate in a part of your reality and a part of your experience that has always been there, but has always been invisible to you. And, you know, I wouldn't be particularly convinced by it, but as I read through it, what I find is that what Steiner is pointing to, what he's trying to get you to, is not some kind of strange magic, right? It's not some kind of hippy-dippy occult thing that you can easily write off because what what it seems to be is instructions for how to have a mystic experience all on your own. Now, if that's the purpose of the occult, if that's the purpose of ritual magic and divination and all these and all these things that you might brush off as fanciful, if that's the point of all of it, then I've misjudged the entire field, the entire discipline. I've misjudged it entirely. So I, I think that's probably true for a lot of occult people, and maybe I'm gonna have to give some more attention to some of those people. Um Rudolf Steiner was kind of an interesting place for me to begin. I think because when he talks about all of these faculties, um, spiritual faculties that you can develop so that you can experience things in the world that are there but invisible to you, that sort of thing, what he's describing really are practices that will remind you of, well, they'll remind you of Buddhism, for instance. They're also going to remind you of the depth psychology of people like Carl Jung. Um, you can imagine, like, just take as an example something like the placebo effect. We don't understand that one bit. Well, what seems to be the case is that through the effort of your will or perception, that people have the ability to impact their physical body, their immune system, um, all sorts of things, with the power of their mind, by either fooling themselves, some people think of placebo that way, um, or by willing themselves. And there's a tremendous amount of real evidence of real physical effects of the placebo effect, the mind affecting the body in a way that science has no way of explaining, at least not a satisfactory way of explaining. And then because meditation is such a part of it, um, it reminds you of Buddhism. It reminds you, I mean, the idea, the goal of these exercises is to come outside of yourself, which is exactly what the Buddha did when he reached enlightenment, you know? To separate yourself from the emotions and thoughts that you have so that you don't identify with them, and that 's exactly what the Buddhists say when they talk about attachments and how to get rid of attachments because those are the causes of um you know suffering in the world and pain, so there's so much overlap that you know I can't write off Buddhism, I never even thought about that I can't write off mystic experience I fucking had one myself can't write that off so here i here I see. Somebody coming at this from an occult angle, and I see so much overlap in legitimate spiritual areas that I feel like I have to, I have to give this some credence. A um, couple things before we jump in, you know, what we're going to look at today is some more specific detail about how Steiner thinks people can behave and, and practice. Um, in order to, like I say, become, a, uh, <laughs> to develop spiritual sight, as he says, or to have access to higher worlds, as he says. But really what he means by that is to have access to the rest of the world, all around you right now, and the rest of, you know, whatever it is that you are, that you can, you can access more of that. You can access um, invisible realms. It's not that they're invented or created by the occult practice. They've always been there. But this gives you a way of seeing it, observing it, experiencing it, and that may sound weird, and i can't I can't disagree with you up entirely, but what I can say is that when I had a mystic experience of my own, that I saw the world differently, and i have a hard time putting into words what I mean by that. I've said some things before that that are a little bit to the point immediately after the mystic experience and the, and the days after that, um, I walked around with a lightness that is hard to describe. It's not something that I uh, that, that maintained permanently. It went away, but I had this lightness and everything seemed bright, seemed more full of potential. Um, people that I encountered seemed more, or I, sh- I guess I should say, they seemed less distinct from me. So I was identifying more with nature, with the people I was encountering. Um, it, it literally made my day-to-day qualitatively different than my ordinary day-to-day. Like for, for a period of a week or two after a mystic experience, I, I felt like I was existing in a changed version of reality. It changed from the inside, you know, but changed nonetheless. The world seemed different to me my relationship to it seemed different to me. And so that that sort of experience makes me think that when Steiner says you can develop spiritual faculties such that when you are existing in the world, it's a different place and you're a different being. Well, you know, that's all very strange, but I kind of understand what he means. It doesn't it doesn't seem impossible to me. I can't write that off, so I have to take it seriously because I had something like this, and I want to know, is what is what I experienced, what Steiner is describing, and is what he says true? That you can, through exercise of your will and discipline, you can have a mystic experience, you can cause yourself to have a mystic experience all on your own, Maybe whenever you want, right? I mean, you can just have one of those experiences and I don't need, you know, any psychedelic drugs or substances to facilitate that. It's, it's endogenous. It's something that's a potential within me that I can make happen. Well, that sounds very appealing to me. You know, if you've had a mystic experience, you kind of know what I mean. There's a little bit of a dragon chasing situation there. You know, when you have such a profound experience, you you want to have it more. You want to have it again. And um imagine if that was possible for you just kind of on demand. So anyway, before I jump in, I want to say the way that uh, Steiner talks about developing these faculties, seeing the spiritual world, what he calls the higher world. Um well, it reminds me of a quote from Plato. Uh, so I want to, I want to read this to you. I think I not really because it's like gonna add much to the conversation? I just think it's fucking cool, so I want to I want to read it to you. So Plato, Plato talks about this idea. Uh, I'll probably mispronounce it. N o u s noose maybe, and it's an idea that has um, ontological um, uh, connections. It, it has something to do with creation. So Plato in the in the dialogues, uh, Plato or Socrates or whoever it is is discussing this. Um, is is discussing this kind of the, in the way that you would uh, talk about God, or in the context of how uh, you know ideas about how things came to be. But it seems to have something to do with consciousness or the intellect or the rational mind because it's also used that way. So you get this you get this picture of Plato as kind of an idealist, and he sort of was an idealist, somebody who believes that. That mind or or something outside of the physical is the real reality Plato called that the world of forms so this idea Noose, he says that it's allows it allows you to perceive the truth and what he means by that is that you know your perceptions aren't the truth right because everyone sees the world a little differently you know the spectrum of colors that you can see. Um, you know, it's a little different from everyone else's. Your your intellectual intellectual capabilities are going to be different. So, you know, maybe some people see the world more deeply than others. Um, you know what I mean? Like everybody sees things a little differently. And so there's really a difficult challenge trying to understand what's really there. Because everyone sees the world a little differently. Um, so when, when Plato's talking about how we understand things to be true, what he means is... We can't really base that off our perceptions because they're flawed, they're imperfect. And what's really there in the world is something that he calls forms. But what we perceive is something kind of like an illusion. It's not the form exactly. If it was, we'd all see it exactly the same, and we don't. So how do we determine what's true if we can't rely on our perceptions? Well, he says there's something within us that perceives truth. It's like an intuition you can imagine. This is how he says it. This is what I want to share with you. He says that noose must somehow perceive truth directly in the way that gods and daemons perceive. In the way that gods and daemons perceive. So this ancient Greek Plato is talking about a different way of perceiving the way the gods perceive, the supernatural beings. Maybe they can see what's really there, right? Maybe they can see, look out and see the forms that are really there, where we're looking up and seeing illusions. And he specifically mentions daemons, and I just think that's interesting. That word's related to demon, and it means spirit, something like that. Um, but it's, it's also something that Socrates specifically talks about. He says he has his own daemon. It's like his Jiminy Cricket, his conscience, it's the spirit within him that speaks to him with a voice that isn't his and tells him when he's right and wrong and when he's lying and when he's being honest. You know, That spirit within you, that's what Socrates calls his daemon. And Plato says that when human beings intuit the truth of something, like one plus one equals two, that has nothing to do with our perceptions. It has to do with the spirit within us that recognizes truth that perceives truth the way that gods do, that perceives objectively, you know, the invisible world of forms. And that's, that's what Steiner's going to talk about. He's going to talk about developing what he calls spiritual sight and hearing, you know, spiritual senses and faculties, that these are things that are that are within us. And if we exercise them, we'll be able to suddenly unlock abilities that we didn't know we had we'll be able to see like the daemon see and the god see. We're going to be able to see more of that, perceive more completely what's really there, not just the physical, but what's there beyond the physical, whatever the spiritual reality is that complements the physical one that we already understand. All right, next I want to read a quote from the book, but it's kind of out of place. It's sort of towards the end. And I want to just... I want to mention it for a few reasons, but let me just read this to you. Steiner says, There are certain other ways which lead more quickly to the goal, but it is not well to treat of them publicly because they may sometimes have effects which would necessitate the immediate intervention of an experienced teacher and his continual supervision. So he gives us a little warning. Now Remember, this whole book is talking about things you can do and disciplines and practices that you can implement so that you can reach this spiritual goal. You can develop these faculties within yourself so that, such that you can have this mystical experience and, and see the world more completely and see the spiritual side of things that are also there and invisible to, uh, to us. And he's saying here that there are quicker ways of getting there. And he doesn't tell us what those are. But he says there are quicker ways of getting there, of reaching the goal. So I don't know what you might imagine that those are, but if you weren't taking a lot of time and effort and disciplining your body and your will to reach this very difficult to achieve state, if you can take a shortcut and get there, what do you imagine that might be? Well, it might be psychedelic drugs. It might be death, even, but it might be psychedelic drugs. And they existed even in, the, even in ancient Greece, you know, the Kaikion. Um, you know, even earlier than that in Iran, the Soma, you know, we they were taking psychoactive drugs as far back as we know. And he says that uh, if you take the shortcut, which he doesn't want to talk about, he doesn't even want to let you in on the secret that it's possible because it's not responsible. You know, it sort of seems like he's saying it's a shortcut and it's not responsible, but he wants to acknowledge that it exists. And it's kind of a warning that if you're one of those people that goes the shortcut route, you're going to be unprepared for what happens to you. There might be a better way for you to enter it where you're prepared or you're better prepared. And there may be dangers to going in unprepared. That's why he says you might need the intervention of an experienced teacher, right? This is why shaman all over the world do psychedelic rituals with their initiates, you know, with the people that are, that are. They're tripping. They're a spirit guide. They're there with them to help them through the process. They've been there before. They've been beyond the veil. They've seen all these crazy things that are going to you know, disorient and discombobulate you. And they're going to terrify you. So I think that Steiner is referring here to psychedelics um, as, as a shortcut to the mystic experience. And he warns us, just like Carl Jung warns us, be wary of unearned wisdom. That's what Carl Jung said when asked about psychedelics, you know? So I think that's probably worth saying right off the bat. What, what's also worth saying right off the bat is that my psychedelic, or excuse me, my mystical experiences were psychedelically induced. They were the shortcut route. I can argue that I felt prepared, um, at least better than many people, but I don't know if I'm rationalizing or making excuses. I'm just being honest with you. Okay, so let's start. Let's get into it. All right, so How to Know Higher Worlds. This is the book by Rudolf Steiner. The last half of the book, um, we talked about this, you know, in the first episode, we got an introduction to the types of things that Steiner suggests we should do. Um, He talks about meditation uh, a lot. He also talks about embracing and eliciting this experience of awe and the emotions that are... That are going to arise in you when you have that experience, you know, and you're standing at the, you know, the entrance of a grand cathedral in Europe and you look up at the the spires and the stained glass and it's just uh, incredibly beautiful and large and it makes you feel small and and inadequate. The same thing is true. looking up at the starry night sky, looking up at at a a mountaintop, um, you know, from the base, all of these kind of things that you can imagine um, make you feel that way, that experience of awe. And focusing on those emotions, focusing on them. So you've got this meditation. You've got this meditation that's designed to get you to see, well, to come outside of yourself, you know. And also to isolate your emotions and feelings and focus on them. And it seems like Steiner's saying that if we do this, if we focus on our emotions and our thoughts and things that uh, are, are internal and less on what's external... If we can separate them, that that's going to start to exercise these muscles, you know, for lack of a better word, these spiritual muscles, these spiritual faculties that we don't practice ordinarily. So our world has gone a different direction. We no longer practice. We don't exercise these muscles. But if you do, if you do these things, that you're going to slowly start to begin to experience the world differently. And that there's a goal, there's a peak experience that happens, or that's, a, uh, that's possible. That's something like a mystical experience that he describes. Um, today we're going to talk about, well, Steiner's sort of approach, which is, he claims anyway, to, to be a continuation of a tradition that goes back to prehistory. Like, this is a practice that's been developed and people have done um, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Um, And it's going to follow kind of three major phases. And the first phase is called probation. It's called probation. So let me just get into this. He says, probation consists of a strict cultivation of the emotional and mental life. Through this, the spiritual body becomes equipped with new instruments of perception. The beginning is made by directing the attention to the germinating, expanding, and flourishing of life in its myriad forms on the one hand, and on the other, the fading, decaying, and passing out of life from all things. We observe these happening simultaneously, and they naturally evoke thoughts and feelings he should fix his attention intently upon these. Wherever he observes expansion and flourishing, he must surrender himself to this one impression. He should allow this thought form to reverberate throughout his whole being. The more one fixes the attention alternately upon growing, expanding, and flourishing, and upon fading and decaying, the more vivid will these feelings become. The organs of clairvoyance evolve themselves from the spiritual feelings which are thus evoked. Okay, so you kind of see this in more detail. During this probationary period, um, we're being told that somebody who's an initiate, somebody who wants to learn this occult way, should notice that all around them things are being born and dying. And you should focus on that. And that's obviously very true. We all know about the cycles of nature and birth and death and everything else. And you know, it, it's it's fundamental to nature. We understand that. So but we're gonna focus on these two sort of opposing things: birth and death, creation and destruction. We're gonna we're gonna focus on the emotions and the thoughts that come up come over us when we when we try to focus on on these these ideas, and then we're going to try to isolate those feelings. Isolate the impression it makes on us so we know how it makes us feel. And try to understand what that means. And the more we do that, and the better we get at that. The more we're exercising these spiritual muscles, these spiritual faculties, and getting them to actually work or waking them up or making them stronger. That that sort of thing. And there's two things that occur to me in this first opening bit here. That focusing on birth and death simultaneously... Well, they're opposites, and there's a paradox there. You know, am I, am I focusing on this impression I'm getting from birth or from death or from both? What, what is this? What am I supposed to be doing? It's not clear, actually. So we have, a, we have something that is, is a bit of a paradox, and it reminds me of, well, things we say all the time when we talk about the idea of God and the oldest symbolic ideas of God. Because what comes up is this idea of the Ouroboros, that what was present in the beginning of time, according to our oldest myths and and according to, you know, um, our oldest ontologies, was something, a very hard-to-define something. And the best way that that they can describe this is by saying it's the union of opposites. It's man and woman together. So usually they're two gods, like in the Mesopotamian creation story. It's... um, the gods um, Marduk and, uh, no, excuse me, Tiamat and Apsu, so the female and, and the male. They're together. And and you can think about this in all sorts of ways, but if you can imagine opposites that make up everything, if you can put two things together that, that capture everything, there's lots of different things that you could say that that is. It could be masculine and feminine. It could be Conscious and unconscious could be potential and actual, subject and object. It could be all kinds of ways of of, of understanding that. But if you try to imagine those things together, you have something like a paradox. It's hard to imagine what that is, but it's also this exercise. It's it's a very interesting exercise because it makes you wonder, what could it be? What could it be when you combine opposites? If it's not nothing, what could it be? And, and symbolically, you can see that if you join opposites, like a man and a woman, that when they come into union, you know, that you can imagine this is sort of a sex act, that what happens when, union, when opposites come together is a, is a generative act. It's something is being created. And this is what comes to my mind when you're being asked to focus on birth and death simultaneously. That's the same paradox that, that the Ouroboros represents. It's whatever isn't abolished when opposites are brought into into union. It's something like potential. It's something like God. And uh, that's what we're supposed to be ultimately coming to understand. Another thing he says here that's interesting is that when we're focusing on these thoughts and emotions that come about when when we're meditating on birth and death that we should surrender ourselves to the impression that that makes on our, on our souls. You know, If we have a certain feeling, a certain emotion, and it has an impact on us, and we should focus on what that is. We should focus on trying to understand what it feels like, what it means, that sort of thing. And it reminds me of this idea of abstracting and embodying. So abstracting is to, is to kind of go up a few levels. If you say to yourself, you know, I feel pain you can abstract that away and, and take yourself out of the picture and say, there is pain. What is that? Right. So you can abstract this idea out, out of the personal context. You can abstract that away from yourself. But you can also embody that. Right. You can embody pain. You can be in pain. And if you are in pain, if you are in pain, you sort of become the experience of pain. There's nothing else that your mind can can concentrate on. You know, not your identity, not yourself, not what you're going to do next. All you can think about it, with an intense enough pain, that's all you can think about. You, you become pain. And that's, a, that's this idea of embodiment. And we're going to see these two things over and over and over again from Steiner. That we should be abstracting ideas and feelings and we should be embodying them. And those are also opposites. We also have a paradox here. To abstract something is to remove it from yourself. To embody it is to become it. It's to put it within yourself. So you have this exercise where you, you know you're supposed to be continually abstracting and embodying thoughts and feelings and emotions. And what that seems to tell me, again, it's a paradox, just like the Ouroboros, just like the the, the concentrating on birth and death and this this opposition. Um, So you have the same sort of thing Paralleled with abstraction and embodiment Um, And and I think that's part of it It's part of realizing that there's some part of you That comes outside of yourself That doesn't belong to your body Or maybe even to the physical world But at the same time it is your body And it does belong to the physical world And so there's, there's something wrapped up in this idea That reflects this invisible part of our of our experience, the God part, as I like to call it, the unconscious part. Um, And it has to do with um, (laughs) struggling, contending with this paradox, abstraction and embodiment, birth and death, the Ouroboros, you know? So he goes on, he says, To him who surrenders himself to such feelings, a new world is opened. Blooming and fading no longer make indefinite impressions on him but instead form themselves into spiritual figures of which he had previously suspected nothing. So this is interesting. What, he, what he's saying here is that if you do what he suggested and you concentrate on birth and death and, and feel that, that flow through yourself and understand that it applies to you as much as it does to the cosmos around you, that when you do that, you will, you will activate I don't know how else to say it. You activate these faculties, these spiritual faculties that you didn't know you had. And you will start to see and hear. And, and it's not clear that he that he means literally see and hear. It's sort of a spiritual sight and, and hearing that he's talking about. But you will see, you will experience things that are in the world that you didn't know were in the world. Spiritual things, forces, forms... You know, things that are just as real as forces and forms in the physical world, but they don't exist in the physical world. And they're still part of you, and they're still part of the physical world. And there's, so there's a paradox there as well. He says, The explorer ought never to lose himself in speculation on the meaning of this or that. By such in- intellectualizing, he only directs himself away from the right road. He ought not to wish to make out what this or that means, but rather to allow the things themselves to inform him. So a couple things I want to say about this. So he's saying here that you shouldn't wish or want things, that you shouldn't want to intellectualize and understand spiritual things. And if you do, it's imposing on them. And what you need is for them to inform you. You don't want to make them something. You want to know what they are. And if you, the more you try to make them something, the more you try to understand them, um, the further away you you get from from understanding them. You know, you're going you're going off the off the path. So there's there's an idea in Taoism that comes up that uh, I've said many times before, but it rings true here, where the Taoists will say that which can be spoken of is not the real Tao. You know, and Tao is this well, it's the spiritual force that that makes everything work. Uh, makes the cosmos work and, and consciousness work and all that. It's uh, that's what the Tao is. And the moment you open your mouth and try to explain it, you're off the path. So there's something like this that's going on. But there's also something that I can tell you from my own mystic experience is <clears throat> is really sort of validated by this. That when you try to control an experience like that, it's the best recipe for having a bad trip. It's the best recipe for having a bad experience. That your will, what you want, and your hmm, limitations, I guess, like the words and the structure that you're trying to impose on this experience so that you can understand it, are taking away what's critically important about the experience. Like you are, you're not doing yourself any favors. You're not doing justice to the experience. You're trying to, you're trying to control it. You're trying to change it, and you don't even realize it. So the only way you can allow this experience to, to play out is to stop doing that, to let go, to stop contending with it, to stop pushing back, stop trying to put it in a box, stop trying to put boundaries around it, stop trying to understand it. Because the mystic experience is beyond concepts. And it's way beyond your ability to control. And the moment you realize to, that you should go with the flow, inaction or non-being, that, that's, that's what they call that in Taoism. Um, that's when you can understand. That's when you can begin to understand. So you see that from Steiner in this way. I just find it, I find interesting. Also, what he says here is that you shouldn't try to make out what things are, what they mean but you should allow things to inform you you should allow the things in themselves to inform you and that's funny because things in themselves that's a philosophical phrase you know when when you hear that if you're if you're familiar with philosophy you immediately think of the word noumena you think of immanuel kant you think of plato things in themselves are the objective reality that we don't see. And I said earlier when we we're talking about Plato and forms that what we see is our perceptions, and they're something like illusions. They're not identical, so that they're not accurate. We know that they're not telling us what's really there exactly. Um, the world of forms, like that Plato talks about, this is what Kant calls things in themselves. We don't ever see those things. They're not part of our perception. And what, he's te- what Steiner's telling us that we should do is allow these impressions that we're getting from our experiences of the world. We should f- concentrate on those feelings that, that are elicited, the emotions and thoughts. And that impression that's made on us, that's something like the thing itself or the closest that we're going to ever get to it. And we have to be open to that because the moment we try to impose on it, we're changing it. It's not the thing in itself anymore. It's whatever we want it to be. And you're not going to get to the truth that way. You know? Next he says, Feelings and thoughts are veritable realities, just as much as tables and chairs. Feelings and thoughts act upon each other. An evil thought may have a devastating effect upon other thought forms, as that wrought upon physical objects by a bullet. All right, man, the hair standing up on my arms. So this is weird, but it's awesome. This is where you get start to get this overlap with Jung that I find so fascinating. I mean, he already used the word thought forms, which is very much like Jung's archetypes or, or Plato's forms. Um, but what, what we have here is him, he, well, he says something interesting. He says, feelings and thoughts are veritable realities that are just as real as tables and chairs. So remember, what he said earlier was... The impressions we get from the world are things like thoughts and feelings, emotions and thoughts and things like that that are impressed upon us when we experience something. It's whatever we get from the thing itself. It's not, it's not part of our interpretation. It's, part, it's just the impact it makes upon us. He says those things that we're supposed to be focusing on, that we're supposed to be abstracting away from ourselves and, and making part of our meditation, those things are as real as tables and chairs they're objects that are that have reality these thoughts and feelings these impressions they are a spiritual reality and the moment we start to conceptualize it that way the moment we start noticing you know what i do feel a certain way thoughts are evoked when i have an experience and they're not a part of me they're exactly they're real they stand on their own somehow in this spiritual reality, and they interact not only with me but with other thoughts. And you have to be careful about that. You know, it reminds me of something that Jesus said in the New Testament, where uh, he was talking. He was talking to um, the Pharisees that were trying to have him killed and thrown in jail, and um, they're asking him about the about the commandments you know, which one is um, which one's the most important and all this sort of stuff. And one of the things that Jesus says is um, that the law, you know, the law of Moses says that you shouldn't commit adultery. And then Jesus says, but I say unto you that anybody who thinks about committing adultery, anybody who has a lustful thought in their mind has already committed that sin. And so that, I think, makes... It, well, it changes the, per, the perspective of the law, but it also tells you something interesting about thoughts and feelings, that they are real, just like Steiner's telling us, and that they, that they can impact other thoughts and feelings in people um, you know, just as, just as much as a physical thing can, just as much as a bullet can, as he says. So you have a lustful thought, and that lustful thought exists. It's a real thing. And it has real impact on the world. And it makes you think differently about your moral responsibilities. It makes you feel differently about disciplining your mind and your thoughts. You know? What do you mean I can just have a random thought and I don't even know the kind of cascade of effects it's going to have on reality beyond me? I think about the state of our uh, society in, in the United States today and I think about the ideological warfare that's going on politically, and I can't help but see these thoughts and feelings as doing battle. They're doing battle right now, and they're having real physical impacts on the world, People are getting deplatformed. They're getting fired. They're getting raised up into positions they they don't they they did they don't belong. They didn't earn, and they shouldn't. You know, there's all kinds of real things happening socially and politically. Changes to the to the education system. Changes to the um, the policing system. Changing changes to the um uh to the to the prison system, and on and on and, and the language and on and on it goes. And those are real things. Those ideas that are floating around, they're 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 not just. Ideas floating around—they're hammers that are destroying social institutions that are that are risking upheaval in in you know our culture. You know, they're real things. All right, he goes on. He says, "The occult student has also to bestow care on the world of sound. He who hears the cry of an animal." will become aware that the sound reveals an inward experience of the animal. The student must concentrate his whole attention upon it so that the sound reveals to him something that lies outside of his own soul. And more than this, must merge himself in, in this exterior thing. He must closely connect his own emotion with the pleasure or pain communicated to him his soul must be filled with that which proceeds from the creature. He who performs such exercises will develop the faculty of intermingling with the creature. One must learn to contemplate the whole of nature in this way. Through her manifold sounds, the whole of nature begins to whisper secrets to the student. His soul will become, by this means, a coherent language of nature. He begins to hear with the soul. All right, that's pretty cool. Uh, a couple things in here that I want to talk about. All right, so he says, if you hear an animal make a sound, you know, what's a bird call, it's a growl, it's a, uh, you know, chipmunk noise or a squirrel barking or whatever, you know, an animal sound. That when you hear that, it's not just a sound, like a bell ringing or, or a tree falling. It's a sound that carries with it more it reveals to you more when you hear it you know that there is a soul making that sound something like that. So he says that we should um, concentrate on that on that sound and and what it's revealing to us. we should understand that there is a consciousness on the other side of that sound and then we should Fill, we should allow ourselves to be filled with that feeling and, and i don't know what that sounds like to you but to me it sounds like you're understanding that there's a, that there are other creatures out there it's not just you like you know perceptions might be illusions but there are other conscious creatures out there it's not just you and you risk solipsism if you don't understand that you know if you if you can chalk up your perceptions as delusion and it's easy to do that you might think that you're the only thing that exists and you know everything is an illusion beyond yourself and what steiner's saying here is if you practice this if you listen to when other people speak or when or when animals make noises that you are you will understand that there is something behind those noises there's something making those noises, something conscious like you, something that is ex- expressing inner emotions uh, and inner reality, just like you have. And so you can't be a solipsist anymore. You have, to, you have to recognize that there are consciousness just like you, outside of you. And then he says that you must merge yourself into the exterior thing, so you you can empathize, right? If an animal's in pain, just like if you see a person in pain, you empathize. You feel what they feel. You mirror their state of mind. You mirror their inner world, in a manner of speaking. And when you can do that, you recognize that there's there's less distinction between you and an animal than you might have thought. There's less distinction between your consciousness and their consciousness than you might have thought. And he says that that exercise develop the faculty of intermingling with the creature. So I don't know what comes to your mind there, but, you know, empathy is definitely something that comes to mind, is to be able to identify with another being on this very personal level. But intermingling with a creature brings up all kinds of images in my mind. I mean, you can imagine the, the Sphinx, the Lama Sioux from Mesopotamia, the, these half-animal, half-man creatures. You know that's what comes to my mind when I imagine intermingling with a with a an animal. You know, angels, right? The image of of a winged human. But how about all these cave paintings that I always talk about? These very ancient, some of the earliest religious images we have: um, the bird man, um, the uh, the lion man. Um, the shaman, the the sorcerer of scow, you know, 30,000-year-old images of half-animal, half-human creatures. They're called therianthropes, you know, and I've always been fascinated by them, that they exist in religious images all through classical antiquity, in the modern world with things like angels, and going way back into our earliest art, you know, these prehistoric cave paintings. You know, I always wondered why and it seems to me that this is, this is exactly why. It's recognizing a connection of consciousness and life as a continuum, as different forms of one thing, you know? And if you can imagine yourself as just a different form of the same thing that's in other human beings or in other animals, it starts to bridge this identity gap between you and them, between subject and object, just like we talked about earlier when we were talking about the Ouroboros. And Steiner says, once we've done that, once we develop the faculty of intermingling with a creature, he says, one must learn to contemplate the whole of nature in this way. So we're going to have to imagine that there is a consciousness to all of nature, just like you have your own. And your identity with it, just like we talked about empathizing with the animal, is exactly that with the whole of nature. It's amazing. That's what Spinoza said. That's basically idealism or panpsychism in a nutshell. And anyway, in doing this, we're going to, we're going to hear uh, more. We're going to, well, sounds are going to reveal more to us of the world than they once did when we start to see the world this way, when we start to hear with our soul, as Steiner says. He also says, If someone expresses an opinion, the inner self will be stirring an assent or contradiction. All such assent or contradiction must be silenced in order that he may attain inward calm. So this is also a very psychological and a very Buddhist uh, thing to hear. He's saying that while while you're on the spiritual path, if somebody around you expresses an opinion, you might disagree, you might agree. But what you have to do is say nothing. Say nothing. You're going to want to, but you shouldn't. You're going to want to get control over that part of you that wants to impose your will. And you just want to shut it up. You want to quell it down. You want to get control over that. And that's going to facilitate this inward calm that Steiner says over and over again, this sort of tranquility of mind and will that's needed to, to experience the spiritual world, that you're going to have to practice this, this internal calm and control over your impulses. He says, he must listen to people who in some respects are far beneath him, and while doing so, suppress every feeling of greater knowledge or of superiority. He who makes a practice of listening uncritically learns to blend himself with the being of another. So you see, we have more of this. Like we we had the intermingling of yourself with an animal and with all of nature. He says that when you're having an experience with somebody else, you need to suppress any feelings of superiority that you might have. Um, or any desire to even educate or inform them. You don't want to impose your will at all. And when you do that, when you, th- when you listen uncritically, he says, you're going to learn to be able to blend yourself with that other human being. As soon as you start judging them, you're building up walls between you and them. And that seems to be exactly wrong, exactly the opposite of this spiritual exercise. You want to bring yourself closer and closer to identifying with other forms of consciousness. You want to see less distinction. You want to tear down those walls so that the animal and you are one. That the other human being you're interacting with and you are one. And eventually that all of nature and you are one. And that is exactly what the mystic experience is all about. This mystical unity, being one with the universe. You've heard people say that before. Clearly, this is what Steiner is saying you can achieve with these exercises. That brings us to the second phase of this occult practice, which Steiner calls enlightenment. It begins like this. Enlightenment is the result of a very, a very simple processes. The primary step is taken by observing different natural objects. If one seeks deeply into such thoughts, there arise in the soul separate kinds of emotion. From the stone into the soul streams one kind of emotion. From the animal, another. So you notice he's saying, just look around. Just experience the world. See the different things that are around. Notice how they make you feel. Notice the impressions and the thoughts that come to you when you Experience a stone or a living being. They're not the same exactly. You're going to get different impressions from them. Notice that. Concentrate on that. Then he says, at first the emotions last only as long as the contemplation. Later on, they grow to something which remains alive in the soul. One then needs only to reflect and both emotions arise apart from an external object. Out of these emotions, clairvoyant organs are formed. We learn by degrees to see astral colors. Every animal, every stone, every plant has its own peculiar shade of color. Okay. So clearly he's saying here that, you know, this is something that is difficult to do. It's going to require a lot of practice. But you're going to look at things, you're going to see what, you try to notice the emotions and the feelings and the thoughts that arise, you're going to focus on those. And what he says is that, he says eventually that those feelings won't go away when you're done thinking about them, they'll just, they'll stick around, they'll be part of you. And that goes back to what I was talking about before when I was talking about embodiment, abstraction and embodiment. So taking something into your soul and noticing it there all the time, it doesn't go away, but it's part of you. That's exactly what what embodiment means, is to make these feelings a part of yourself. Then he says, um, one then needs to reflect on... um, One then needs only to reflect. And and the emotions will arise uh, apart from the object that originally elicited them, the impression that you got. So that's abstraction, right? Then you can have these emotions accessible to you whenever you want. You don't have to look at the objects that gave you that impression because you've embodied them. They're just part of you. So it requires abstraction. You have to abstract the feeling away from the object. And then you have to incorporate it into yourself. You have to embody it. And so that's this paradox, this is simultaneously coming away from something and bringing it into yourself. And anytime you see paradox like that, especially when we're talking about spiritual things, these are clues to me that we're talking about mysticism, you know, the unknowable. That's why you get the feeling of paradox, because you can't quite make sense of it. There's something beyond um, understanding going on. Now, he does say that these that Clair, clairvoyant organs are formed, the spiritual way of looking at the world or the spiritual aspects to the world that become visible or become perceptible to you somehow. And he talks about these being astral colors, that everything has its own, you know, uh, and that they're also sounds and they're also figures and forms, he says. So you're going to be able to start to see things or notice things you didn't once notice and these these are one of those things that I ordinarily would just write off. I as Hokum, you know, I could just look around at people and see their auras glowing colors like I don't think so, man. But at the same time, Steiner's insistence that this is part of this this mystical, this natural way of evoking mystical experience makes me think twice about it. And the thing that allows me to sort of keep this in in uh, you know, in our discussion today is because Steiner's not the only one that says this. And and so I have to give it some credence, you know, and in in ancient China, they, they called it chi, you know, and and, in India, they have, they have uh, uh, the same sort of ideas of, of, um, of colors, uh, light and fire and colors that surround things and that people can learn to detect. And, you know, there's all kinds of people that I would call hippy dippy, but healers of various kinds that that talk about that today, uh, that they can see um, auras and colors about you. And, and, you know, is is there some reality to that? I mean, I would, historically, I would have said probably not. But I'm just not comfortable saying that at this point. I've never experienced it, but I can't say that it's not uh, a possibility. All right, then he says, if a man has acquired the faculty of seeing with spiritual eyes... He sooner or later meets with beings, some of them higher, some lower than himself. Beings who never entered into physical existence. Okay, so you've got these thoughts and ideas that Steiner says are real. They're real things that really impact the world. And when you begin to see them, they're going to take the form of beings. And some of those beings, what well, <laughs> Some of those beings, he says, haven't yet entered into the physical world. They're like potentials, right? It's like when you can see the spiritual reality, you're seeing something like potentiality. And I think that's beautiful because that's that's one of the best ways that I have been able to conceptualize God in my mind as potentiality, as whatever it is that makes things possible, you know? And then we're we're also talking about embodiment, you know, abstraction and embodiment. And so that's also something that comes to mind is beings that haven't yet entered into physical existence. They're unmanifest. You know, they haven't yet been embodied. And so much of what Steiner's talking about is embodying, bringing into ourselves, what Carl Jung would, would call integrating these spiritual forces into ourselves. I think that's interesting. And he says... The student must always be enlarging his sympathy with the animal and human worlds and his sense of nature's beauty. Everyone must say to himself, in my own sphere of thoughts and sensations lie enfolded the deepest mysteries, but hitherto I have been unable to perceive them. So it's pretty straightforward. He says we should always be working at enlarging our sympathies with the animal, and human worlds. By that, he means exactly what we've said a moment ago. Continue to be able to identify with them. Continue to break down the walls that separate you and them. Work on your empathy. Work on your sympathy. Work on feeling the way they feel, mirroring mirroring them, um, feeling yourself to be one with them. And uh, and the more you do that, the closer you're going to get to some some divine truth, some powerful fundamental reality. This is pointing, again, to the oneness, to the mystical unity, but we're, we're going to get there. Then he says something interesting here. He says, everyone should say to himself, in my own sphere of thoughts lie enfolded the deepest mysteries. What does that mean? Within your personal consciousness, your own sphere of thoughts and sensations, right? Within your own consciousness lies enfolded to the deepest mysteries. That's God. That's exactly what an idealist would say. That's exactly what I would say. And Steiner's saying it. That all you have to do is look into the thing that makes your thoughts and sensations possible, your own consciousness, and there you will find the deepest mysteries. And I I think of that as the God within, as recognizing the God within. That's what the mystic experience ultimately does. And Steiner says that you've been unable to perceive them, and, and here you'll be able to perceive them within yourself. You know, it's like if you're looking for God, look no further than your own awareness, you know? All right, hold on, let's see. Where did I go? Uh, okay. All right, so now he says, Place before you the small seed of a plant. Describe the shape, color, and all other qualities. Then dwell upon the following train of thought. This seed, if planted in the soil, will grow into a plant of complex structure. Let him clearly picture this plant, let him build it up in his imagination and then let him reflect that the object in his imagination will presently be brought into actual physical existence by the forces of the earth and of light. He will reason that which is to grow out of this seed is already a force secretly enfolded within it. The seed contains something invisible. It is this invisible something on which thought and feeling are now concentrated. Realize that this invisible something will later on translate itself into a visible plant. Let him dwell upon the thought the invisible will become visible. Man, oh man. So that's the paradox again. The, visible, the invisible becoming visible. We, we again and again and again encounter this paradox. And then he says something here that I think is so beautiful. He said, that which is to grow out of the seed is already a force secretly enfolded within it. So he said something like that a minute ago. He said that the, that, that the mysteries, right, the deepest mysteries are enfolded in our consciousness. They're already there. And he says something similar here, right? What's in the seed that will become a tree is also secretly enfolded within it. So it seems like we're talking about the same thing here. That which makes a seed into a tree, something that I just called a minute ago potential or potentiality, that's the thing that God is. That's the thing in your own consciousness and the thing in the seed that unfolds into a- actuality. It has this potential, this pattern, invisible but there. And it, it, will, it will unfold and, bl- and blossom out of this seed. So there's a connection between whatever it is that is, this potential, and our consciousness, that's God, you know. And this bit here where he says, let him reflect that the object in his imagination, when you're when you're picturing the tree that, you know, that will eventually come from the seed, he said, will presently be brought into actual physical existence by the forces of the earth and of light. So Earlier, we talked about thoughts and feelings being real and actually impacting the world. Um, and I think this is related, you know, consciousness that's unfolding, this 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 God, you know, within the seed that allows it to become. That's a, that's a good way of talking about it. Philosophers talk about the difference between being and becoming. You know, becoming is this constant transformation. It's 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 potential that's moving. You know, and and that's something that's real and actually. Impacts the world, you know, it causes the seed to open up and become a mighty oak. You know, what is that? And he says, particular stress must be laid on feeling with intensity that which one thinks. Sufficient time must be taken to allow the thought and feeling to become embedded in the soul. If that is accomplished, the seed will appear as if enclosed in a small luminous cloud created by the power of thought and feeling. That which was physically invisible has there revealed itself to the spiritual eye. So now he's saying that those auras, those colors that you see, um, you know, if you develop what he calls clairvoyance, if you develop these sort of spiritual faculties, that you will see this aura, this glowing, this, this flame, this color, um. And that what that is, is exactly what you detect in the seed. It's the potential. It's the unfolding. It's God. It's consciousness. It's all of those things. It's the thing that, that transforms the potential within. And, and that's what you're seeing. That's what you're detecting when you learn you know, to see the higher worlds, when you learn to see this auras and colors that, he, that he's talking about, that, that people will talk about. That's what you're detecting. The spiritual reality that you couldn't see before. What used to be invisible, becoming visible. It's something like being able to see the spirit of God. You know, something like that. The spirit of life within all things. And not, not just within the animals and the humans. Remember, he talked about looking at a rock and, and getting impressions from the rock. So even in that, even in the, the non-living, you see these, these auras, the spirit of God. And then he says, to the outer senses, a being at its birth, excuse me, to the outer senses, a being, uh, I, I must have erased a word that was important there. I think it's a, it's a being exists at its birth and ceases at its death, right? So that's how it seems to us uh, on the surface. He said, this, however, only appears to be so because these senses are unable to apprehend the concealed spirit Birth and death are, for the spirit, transformations, just as the unfolding of the flower from the bud is a transformation. All right, so this is one of the advantages, right, of developing spiritual faculties. So when you look at the world, you know, you're, you're getting information from the world. You're, tra- you get, you're, you're coming up with an understanding of the world. And if you look out uh, at birth and death, if you look out at things being born and dying, you're going to imagine that that's true of life, that's true of consciousness, that it begins at birth and it ends at death. But if you could see the spiritual reality, if you could see the auras and the, and the, and the figures and the, and, the, and the lights and all this stuff that he's, he's referring to through his kind of clairvoyance, that you would know that's not the case, that the spiritual reality doesn't end and doesn't begin. It just transforms from one form, from one state to another. And that's beautiful. I mean, it reminds you of things like reincarnation, but it also reminds you of things like, like um, conservation of energy, like Newton's laws, you know. Matter isn't created or destroyed. It just transforms from one state to another. So you see a coherence there in the spiritual reality and the physical one. And then he says, After the disciple has evolved spiritual vision he may proceed to the contemplation of human nature itself. Begin by observing a person filled with desire. Direct your attention to this desire. Then surrender yourself entirely to the contemplation. So remember, we're abstracting, we're we're noticing some, some desire in someone, we're abstracting that out, we're imagining how that feels. He says, this contemplation is to evoke a state of feeling In your soul. Allow this feeling to arise. After a time, a luminous image will appear in your field of vision, the so called astral manifestation. Freely surrender yourself to these spiritual impressions. So here he's talking about concentrating on desire, abstracting that out. Again, we're talking about abstracting and embodying again. But we abstract this feeling of desire that we notice in somebody else. We allow ourselves to feel it, so we have to have that empathy. We have to put ourselves in in the feeling state of this person. We have to feel what they feel. We have to be who they are. And when we do that, he said, we're going to see a spiritual reality. We're going to see that desire as a thing on its own. A spiritual perception of a spirit of a particular emotion. As a real entity. Isn't that weird? It's something like the classical gods were perceived. You know, it's like if I was overwhelmed by anger, it's because the spirit of, you know, Ares possessed me. If I was, uh, you know, overwhelmed by, you know, sexual desire, it's because of the god Eros possessed me. It's almost like these spirits are creatures all of their own. And Steiner's... Steiner is framing the emotions and feelings and thoughts that we have as in exactly the same way, as entities that exist somehow on their own that affect you know, our physical world, but they also affect the spiritual world in ways we never, we never even conceived. And we're supposed to surrender ourselves to those spiritual impressions. He says, That which dwells in each human being must be regarded as something holy, we must be possessed by a feeling of reverential awe. He will then become qualified for a deeper insight into the mysterious correlations between the nature of man and all else that exists in the universe. So a couple of things here. When he says there's something in every human being that has to be regarded as holy, when he's talking about the thing that makes us alive. He's talking about our consciousness, that that thing that's enfolded, you know, in in within ourselves, the deepest mystery enfolded in ourselves, the thing that's wrapped up in the seed that unfolds into a tree, this potentiality, right? That's something holy. And we should see we should recognize it in each other and in all things. He says, then we'll be ready for a deeper insight. Into the mysterious correlations between man and everything else that exists in the universe, so if that's not a tip-off, if that's not foreshadowing, I don't know what is. The mysterious correlations between man and the rest of the universe—you know—it reminds me of hermeticism: "As above, so below." What the world is like is what the gods are like, and that's what he's saying. Something like this—that there's correlations between what we are as human beings. And the whole rest of the of the universe. And we've already alluded to what that commonality is, the mystery that's enfolded in us, the same mystery that's enfolded in the seed, that unfolds, this transformation that unfolds, that this is something that's associated with our consciousness, with our experience. And that's that's something that I will call God. And Steiner's getting closer and closer to doing. He says, the forces at work in the world are both destructive and creative. The initiate is to behold this march of destiny and see himself as interwoven with these forces. So this goes back to the beginning. We're going to concentrate on the forces of birth and death. We're going we're to see that in ourselves the same as we do in the world. We're going to feel a certain way about that. We're going to focus on those feelings. And you notice that, again, it's a paradox, you know, the destructive and creative we're talking about the union of opposites we're we're confronting this this paradox again we have to see that within ourselves as a part of this process and that image of everything that exists both physically and spiritually being part of a process that's this oneness that we keep talking about this mystic unity that whatever it is we are whatever it is we're doing whatever is hidden and whatever's you know, obvious, all of that is part of one process. It's part of one something. And we're just merging and merging identity at every level until we come to this realization. Steiner says, reasons which formerly influenced him will now disappear. He has done many things out of vanity. He will now perceive utterly How futile such vanity is. He has done much from motives of avarice. He will now be aware of the destructive effect of all avariciousness. Why is that? Why are you going to see these sorts of changes in yourself as you practice these spiritual things? You're not going to be able to act out of vanity. You're not going to be able to act out of avarice. Why? Because you no longer see a distinction between yourself and the world. Why would you act out of vanity if you are everything else all at once? Why would you act out of avarice when there is no difference between you and the people you'd be acting out on? You wouldn't. So the closer you get to this sort of cosmic identity, you will start to see changes in the way you see the world and then changes in the way you behave and this is exactly how Jordan Peterson describes embodiment, by the way. It's like when people embody uh, a belief, they act it out. And they sometimes do that without ever thinking about it. You know, it's like you might not even know that you, that you have a certain belief, but somebody who watches you can tell you you have it because you act it out. And a good example I've used before, but uh, it's a funny one, so I'll throw it in here. Uh, there's this example, I think John Stossel brought this up years ago. Um, and it's just sort of a, like a thought experiment, but it's like a, a college kid, um, gets obsessed with the idea of communism and he's taking a class on economics and writing about, about communism. And he writes a paper and he, he gets a good grade on it and he's very happy about it. And he talks to the professor and the professor says to him, you know, I see you, you spent a lot of time, you researched it, you really got into these ideas. You seem to be influenced by them. They seem to make sense to you. The paper was well done. How about this? Since you seem to believe in communism." You got an A on the paper. You got a hundred points, right? You got a perfect hundred. How about we give twenty percentage points from your paper to the people who got the worst grades, right? That'll that'll be that'll be fair, right? You know, I can take from you because you don't need it, and I can give to them because they do need it. You know, and you believe in communism, right? Don't you want that? And the kid says, fuck no, I spent all night you know, researching that, and I spent two days writing it and, re- and revising it. I put all this work in, I'm not giving that. And the professor says, well, I thought you were a communist. You see, that kid wasn't embodying what he proclaimed he believed. If he was embodying it, he would have been 100% on board, He's a communist to each according to their own, or from each according to their ability, to each according to their need. He should be giving his points to the people who need it if he was a communist. So this is an idea, this is an illustration of how embodying an idea is possible and how sometimes it's conscious and sometimes it's not. And people can think they have a belief, but unless they're embodying it, they don't really. And that's what that's what we're being asked to do. That's what Steiner is telling us to do, to embody these things. All right, he says, the disciple must learn never to despair. He must aspire again and again to the divine. And he says this because he's like, look, this is a practice and it's not easy. And if you are faint of heart and if you're going to throw in the towel, this isn't for you. Like you're never going to get anywhere. You, you have to learn never to despair. You have to, you have to continue to try over and over and over and over again. Then he says if he fulfills these conditions, he is then worthy to hear uttered the key that unlocks the higher knowledge. For initiation consists in this very act of learning how things, by those names which they bear in the spirit of their divine author, And the mystery of things lies in these names. The initiate speaks another language than that of the uninitiate, for he knows the names by which things were called into existence. Okay, so the hair stands up on my arms. I don't know what this means, but it's really fucking cool to me. So what is he talking about here? He's talking about developing the spiritual faculties that will eventually lead to learning, what he says, the names, the names that things were called into existence. So, yeah, I have to go back to Genesis here because this is the only context in which this makes sense. In the book of Genesis, when God is creating everything, right, he's creating the animals and Adam is naming them. If you remember that story, God creates and Adam names the things. And it's something something like giving them a name completes the process of creating them. God creates the Adam gives them a name. So whatever names that they were called into existence with, whatever names God called them, brought them into existence. And this goes back to, well, kind of a a deep idea uh, that we see in Genesis. So in Genesis, God is described as the force on the surface of the deep. The Word of God, the Logos, is like a spirit that was on the surface of the deep. That's the same spirit that gets breathed into the forms, the clay forms of Adam, uh, you know, of Adam when, when he's brought to life. God makes his form out of clay and breathes life into it. So there's something about the breath of God, the spirit of God, the anima. There's something about that that is involved in the creation of the universe. It's what causes the creation of the universe. It's also the thing that causes you and I to be alive. It's the spirit within us. That's the consciousness that, we, that we're talking about, the things that Steiner can see through his clairvoyant eyes as glowing light around objects, that kind of thing. And the names that things were called that brought them into being, so it's like God speaks them into being, just like he spoke the world into being, let there be light, right? He just spoke it into being. There's something incredibly significant about words about the logos, the spirit of God and naming and you know using the the uh, the logos to create. It also reminds me of the power of names. I mean people are who are familiar with the occult will, will probably know this already but in ritual magic, Knowing the name of uh, a spirit or knowing the name of somebody you're trying to, you know, curse or something, I don't know. Knowing the name is significant. Like, it's part of what makes the magic work. And you can see, like, historical elements of this in the story of Rumpelstiltskin comes to mind. Very, very old fairy tale, you know. And in the story of Rumpelstiltskin... um, he, he's going to basically get, I believe it's the baby of, of uh, the woman that that, um, that he's um, uh, interacting with. He's going to get the baby as a reward uh, for helping her spin all of this hay into uh, into gold or whatever it is. Uh, you know, you guys know how the story goes. Um, and the only way the girl can get out of this is if she learns his name. She has to learn Rumpelstiltskin's name. And she's got like three... Chances to get it right, and if she doesn't, she loses her baby you know so why is it that learning his name gives her power over him? and this is what this is a whole constellation of ideas about the power of words um, about the sort of magical power of words like another another way of explaining this is sort of strange but i'll try I'll try here is when you speak, there's something really strange that's happening. you've got ideas information, concepts. you got things in your mental world that don't exist in the physical world. They only exist in your consciousness. And your consciousness has the ability somehow to manipulate your body, to do what I'm doing now, to make coherent sounds and to express them into the world. And there are contagious in a way, you know? Like I breathe these words into the world and you hear them and you can understand an idea that wasn't in your head until you heard it from me. What happened here? It's like I was able to take this thing from a call it a spiritual reality, a place that exists only in my consciousness. And I I took something, an idea from that world and I I poured it forth into the world from my mouth. I vibrated my vocal cords. I vibrated these sound waves. And I caused these ideas to come from an invisible place out into the physical world where they can have an actual impact on things. And I, that may seem like an obvious thing to say, but it, in those in that context, it's an extremely spiritual and extremely uh, powerful idea. That consciousness has the ability to take something spiritual, something invisible, and to make it something physical and real. So that has something to do with the power of words and names. And this is what Steiner says, will be bestowed upon you when you when you develop these spiritual faculties that you will know the names of things that were that were used to call them into being by God in the beginning. And that somehow gives you what? It gives you some sort of Connection with or spiritual control of creation. That leads us to the final section, which is called initiation. And Steiner says the highest degree in occultism is initiation. These are so-called trials, which have to be passed. So now he's going to tell us about these trials. You know, once you've been through probation and enlightenment, now you're going to get tested, okay? He says, in the first, called the process of purification by fire, the initiate discloses to the candidate how the objects of nature reveal themselves to the spiritual hearing and sight. Attributes concealed from physical eyes and ears can then be seen and heard. Okay, so the person who's going through this process is told, you know, what, kind of what we've already learned, that there's a way of seeing spiritually things that don't ex- that you can't observe physically. That's what Steiner calls clairvoyance. He says, after the fire, fire trial, he then has to be instructed in certain, a certain writing system. Occult teachings are written in this occult writing system because what is really occult can neither be perfectly spoken of in words, nor set forth in the ordinary ways of writing. Okay, so he doesn't actually tell us what this writing is. I don't know what might come to your mind, but a spiritual way of writing, and you know, a spiritual way of reading, it's like interpreting things, symbols, that maybe exist in the world, and you can communicate them also to other people by, by a sort of symbolic writing system. That seems very strange, but it makes me think of lots of things. It makes me think of the symbols that were used in ancient alchemy. You know, it it reminds me of um, the archetypes um, and the images that Carl Jung talks about as associated with these archetypes, because images are symbols. They're, They're representations that carry some meaning. And I think about things like, tarot cards, because that fits firmly into the occult world, what do you have with tarot cards is something like Carl Jung describes with archetypes. You've got images that have encoded meaning, but they're and they're representational, but they're also interpretable. It's like the meaning that you get out of them is sort of infinite. And there's a way of understanding symbolic meaning. Uh, that would be like a way of understanding a language, a whole other language, and it, this is strange, but it's sort of how we already understand things. And I've talked about this before, but there's this constellation of ideas that surrounds any word or any idea, any concept. And the postmodernists always always point out that meaning is always deferred. So if I say to you, "Um, you know what what is the sun?" you're going to give me words that describe the sun, but you're not not—you're not describing the sun exactly. You're just giving me other words that have similar meaning. So, you know, I say, what is the sun? And you say gas and burning and heat and light and all these other words. Um, you think you're explaining to me what the sun is, but then I, I could turn around and say, well, what's a sphere and what's gas and what's light and what's heat? And you're going to have to then give me other words that to explain what those things are. And what you see is that we're constantly deferring the meaning of the sun to more and more words. And there's an image that should come to mind. It's like the picture of the sun is in the middle, and all these other words are in this constellation surrounding it, this cloud surrounding this this thing. And I have no access to the thing itself. I only have access to this constellation of meaning that surrounds it. And that's how symbols work. And that's how you can get meaning and interpret, you know, symbols. So imagine that. Imagine that you have the spiritual faculties that get developed that allow you to read in the world things that you didn't used to be able to detect. And they're symbolic and they're filled with meaning. This is something like what it sounds like to me. And he says we need this spiritual writing system. We need this symbolic system so that our spirits can talk to each other. They're not limited by the by the physical. They're not limited by finite concepts, you know. And he says that ordinary speech and ordinary writing doesn't doesn't work because what you're trying to speak about is infinite. It's not limited. It's not anything like the world. It's not anything like words or symbols. It's infinite. And again, it reminds me of what the Taoists say when they say uh, the Tao that can be spoken of is not the real Tao. It's what they mean. It's unknowable. Or at least beyond concepts. All right, Steiner says, the symbols correspond to powers which are active in nature. The candidate sees that these symbols correspond to the spiritual figures, tones, and colors which he had learned to perceive. All which went before was like learning to spell and only now does he begin to read the higher worlds. All that appeared to him before as separate figures, tones, and colors is now revealed as a perfect unity. And there it is. I mean, there's the key to this whole thing. So when you're developing these, this clairvoyance, you're beginning to see and hear things that are invisible, or naudable, that are that are part of the world, but but are otherwise unavailable to you. And you begin to interpret them you begin to understand what they mean. And this is the spiritual language that he's talking about. And all these spiritual things like the aura colors and the, and the beings that, that are yet to be manifest and all these things that you are, are able to learn to see, that they become clear to you are something that's a perfect unity. They, they combined the physical and the spiritual into one wholeness, you know, to one thing, this mystical unity that that the mystic experience talks about. And he goes on, he says, now that the student has learned the mystery language, he must prove whether he can move with freedom in the higher worlds. He must prove that he can act from inner promptings. The teacher will set before the pupil certain tasks. He has to find the way to what he is to perform by means of the mystery language. If he discerns his duty and executes correctly, he has endured the water trial. Okay, so you can imagine the final trial here is the, uh, the student being given a, ta- given a task, but he's not told how to accomplish it. He has to be able to see and interpret the spiritual realities. He has to read that spiritual language, understand the meaning all by himself with no help. He has to, he has to understand the spirit well enough and he has to have access to that uh, clearly enough to know what he has to do without any help. And if he manages to do that, then he's like a self-actualized being. And Steiner says, in the higher worlds, our wishes, inclinations, and desires are causes that produce effects. So we understand that our our thoughts, our ideas, our wishes, our desires, those are causes that produce effects. They're they're actually active in the world. They actually make a difference. So disciplining your desires and thoughts are just as important as disciplining your your body and mind. Steiner says, keeping the higher secrets ever present in the soul, he must be absolutely at one with the higher truths. He must manifest them in, in living actions. Even as an ordinary man eats and drinks, they must become part of oneself and express themselves through one's very being. So you see this idea of embodiment again. Once you learn the higher secrets, you have to bring them into yourself. He said you must manifest them in living actions. You have to become them and live them out. Live out this... this well, this this enlightened principle that you understand you're one with the universe, and then you act in the world as though you are one with the universe, and that creates certain changes in your behavior, right? You're going to be a kinder person. You're going to turn the other cheek, as Jesus said. Why? Because you are the same as everything you encounter, identical. It reminds me of a line from Shakespeare from Romeo and Juliet. I'll probably butcher it but it's something like um oh, shoot Romeo's talking to Tybalt, I think and he says the reason I have to love you oh boy I'm butchering it he's basically he's basically in a life and death str- struggle with uh, Juliet's cousin and he's trying to explain without telling him he married Juliet that the reasons he has to love him are going to prevent him from from fighting from from fighting to the death or he doesn't want to kill him because they're you know they're 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 you know, related now. So that's what happens when you have this spiritual unity and this oneness. It changes your behavior because you the reason you have to love everything around you is a matter of identity. It's you. So yeah, you're gonna do what Jesus said. You're gonna do unto others, right? Because you are them. All right, Steiner says it must always be remembered that occult training is perfected, not by external processes but by subtle alterations in the life of thought and emotion. And so this is interesting. This is, this is him saying that it's not about the practices that he's laid out. It's not about doing them. It's about what doing them does within you. If you, if you follow the practices, you're going to have subtle changes within you that are going to bring about this, this clairvoyance and access to higher worlds and access to the spiritual reality. He says, one must encounter face-to-face his own faults, failings, and unfitness. They can be removed only by self-illumination. Self-knowledge is difficult, for the temptation to deceive oneself is immeasurably great. So in, in the first episode we did, he talked a lot about being uncritical and not judging. And I think this is related. He's like, you shouldn't be... Um, critical in judging others because it's something that will prevent you from identifying with them, from, from unifying your identity with them, and that's a huge obstacle to the mystic enlightenment. But you have to do the same with yourself. You have to come face-to-face with your own faults, failings, and unfitness. You have to see that you are, in many ways, no better than the people that you you know previously maybe looked down on. You have your own faults just like everyone else. We're all imperfect We've all fallen short of the glory of God, as they say. But you have to become aware of that. You have to become conscious of that. You have to get rid of those uh, feelings that might have held you back, um, and uh, and, the, and the temptation to do that, he said, is immeasurably great. Right? That's protecting our ego. You know, we don't ever want to be wrong. We don't. You know what I mean? We we don't ever say we're sorry. You know we we have to get over that. He says, the qualities which have to be combated are anger and vexation, ambition, timidity, curiosity, superstition, conceit, prejudice, gossip, and the making of distinctions in regards to human beings. He says, bring into utter stillness all thoughts, become silent within, wait in patience. And then the tranquil higher worlds will begin to develop the sight of your soul. Make no attempt to attract higher powers by an effort of the will. so earlier we, t- we talked a lot about it you know the um, the prohibition against imposing your will and and you you know you you can see why you want to avoid doing that because if you want to be able to accept yourself as the same as everything else everyone and everything else around you. You know, you you have to be able to um, see the, the, you know, the oneness. You can't impose your will because why would you? You're all the same. You know, the imposition of your will is, again, a border or a boundary that you put up between yourself and the rest of reality. And it's unnecessary. You can tear that down. Um, let's see. Uh, in, the, he's, he's, in the beginning, he's talking about all these qualities that should be combated, and so these are exercises that you can focus on. It's like when you get angry um, or irritated; um, those are those are feelings that you should work on uh, quelling. You should you should work on getting control over that. Um, you know, remember anger and, and uh, ambition and all these things he's talking about. They're like standalone beings. You know, they're like something that is to be seen as not a part of you, like a force acting within you, but more like something acting upon you. You know, you have to, you have to be able to get above it. You have to rise above these, these, um, forces that are pushing and pulling you from the inside. You have to become master of yourself. And then lastly, uh, you know, you, you have to avoid prejudice and gossip and you can think, you know, that makes sense if you're trying to, if you're trying to, f- uh, foster a, a, a you know, a feeling of, of unity and identity between you and other people, you know, certainly want to be, don't want to be talking shit about them because you're just talking shit about yourself, you know? You're not going to gossip about them. And then more to the point, he says, you have to stop making distinctions between yourself and other, other beings. That's exactly it. And then he says, the student must realize that his thoughts and feelings are as important for the world as his deeds it is as pernicious to hate a fellow being as to strike him. This goes back to the understanding of thoughts and ideas as being powerful in the world. They're not just in your head; they're powerful. You know, um, just like Jesus, just like Jesus said, you know, it's not enough to to not cheat on your wife. You have to avoid thinking lustfully about anybody else. Otherwise, you're just as guilty. Thoughts are powerful, and we have to recognize that, and we have to rise above that. He says, by perfecting oneself, one accomplishes something not only for oneself, but for the whole world. So long as one cannot believe in this worldwide importance of the inner self, one is not fit for discipleship. So if I realize that my negative thoughts and feelings literally impact the world, and I develop the discipline to control them, I'm literally doing a favor. I'm doing a kindness to the world simply by controlling my own thoughts and ideas. And he says, the real being of man does not lie in the exterior, but in the interior. So that's like not the body, but the soul kind of thing. So he who regards himself as merely a result of the physical world cannot succeed in occult training. I think that's funny because that's, Well, that's all of the materialists and the physicalists out there. You know, all of the people that buy, um, you know, the modern scientific narrative. He says, uh, he who regards himself as merely a result of the physical world. Well, that's what science teaches us, right? We were evolved biologically from the physical world. We're made of stardust. You know, that's what we are. Nothing more than uh, uh, the result of the physical world and processes. Someone who thinks that can never succeed in occult training. Because there is more to the world than the physical. There's, some, there's more going on. David Chalmers proved this, proved this point when he talked about consciousness in, in his book, The Conscious Mind. He said consciousness does not supervene on the physical. There's no, nothing about the laws of physics or physical reality that explains consciousness. So there is more to the world than the physical. And if you think that's all there is, you're never, you're, your blindness will never allow you to make any progress spiritually. I think that that fact is part of the reason, it's a big part of the reason for the social unrest and the cultural disturbances that we're seeing in in our modern world. This prevalence of atheism and this process of convincing people that we know everything there is to know and that there's no mystery to the world and that the soul and spirit and psyche are, are nonsense and it's like we're missing half of our reality and we're pretending like we're not and and we're fucked up over it. All right, he says, external forms are regarded as worthless by those who do not know that the internal must find expression in the external. So he see, here he's, kind of pointing the finger at the at this two spiritually-minded people, which is an interesting you know, contrast. So we said something about the materialist-physicalist phys- types, and now he's saying people who think external forms aren't important, people are only concerned about the spirit um, it, you know, and the invisible realities, that those people don't know that the internal has to find expression in the external. And this is what Carl Jung called projection. You know, we look, we look at the world and we project our inner feelings and experiences onto them. And um, it's exactly what Steiner's saying, that the external world gives a means of embodiment to the spiritual realities. And without each other, we have nothing. We need the internal and the external. We need the potential and the actual. That goes back to the Ouroboros, the union of opposites. That's the thing that God is, and we need them both if we get too bogged down on the physical, we're hopeless. If we get too bogged down on the spiritual, we're hopeless. We need to understand the necessity and the power of both. It's something like a process, like Alfred North Whitehead had told us. There's a, the secret of reality isn't, isn't a deity exactly, but it's a process. It's a back and forth between the potential and the actual, the subject and the object. It's whatever the Ouroboros represents this eternal process. He says, it is true that the spirit and not the form really matters, but just as the form is void without spirit, so would the spirit remain inactive as long as it could not create a form. So this this internal world, the spiritual world needs form. It needs the cosmos, the material reality, in order to be embodied, in order to exist, to be actualized. He says, one must realize that one's existence is a gift from the entire universe. (laughs) Absolutely. He will learn to sacrifice for for the world his whole being. He who cannot enter into such thoughts will be incapable of that all-inclusive love, which is necessary to attain higher knowledge. The love of man must be slowly widened out into a love for all of existence. So anybody who's ever had a mystic experience knows what that's all about. It's not just a feeling of unity and oneness. It's accompanied by a dramatically powerful wave of love and acceptance and comfort. Love is such an important part of it. And just ask any hippie and they'll tell you. And he says, slowly widening out um, into a love for all existence. Like that's the process that we're supposed to be going through. And that's connected to what we've been saying all along. It's widening out our consciousness, widening widening out our identity to encompass other things, other beings, until we can encompass all of the cosmos, all of reality. That that's what the mystic experience is about. It's tearing down the walls and becoming one with the universe, of loving your neighbor as yourself, as Jesus said. That brings me to my conclusion. I've spoken a lot in the past about mystical experience, including my own. I have not held back, but admitted readily that these experiences can be induced, as was the case for me. In these discussions, I'm often asked what it means to induce an experience, and if psychoactive substances are necessary to achieve them. This is an important question for the seeker who is uncomfortable or unwilling to partake of psychedelics, and equally for one who is adamant about properly earning such a profound experience. The way of shaman and spiritual masters of old provide paths of this sort. Sleep and sensory deprivation, meditation and ecstatic ritual are common examples. But there is another tradition, another path which Steiner is attempting to communicate. He claims that higher worlds can be reached by following a set of practices that stretch back into prehistory and connect such disparate movements as the pre-Socratic philosophers, the mystery cults of classical antiquity, the medieval alchemists, and, as it turns out, the mystics of every era. The connection Steiner makes between the occult and mystical experience came as quite the surprise to me. I suppose I imagined that occult practice was intended to provide some form of power or control over the forces of nature or else provide access to some supernatural faculties of, to my mind, questionable validity. My mind references smoke and mirrors, magic, crystal balls and divination, but mystical experience never made its way into the mix. In retrospect, The current that flows through these, that there is more to experience than meets the eye, is very much the same. In this light, I reopen my mind to the possibility that there is something worthwhile in the esoteric pursuit. I believe Steiner's occultism is a system designed to naturally elicit the same kind of mystical experience spoken of by the psychonauts. No drugs required. What I wrote off as smoke and mirrors turns out to be a careful psychological training designed with one goal in mind, achieving mystical unity. With this in mind, let's re-examine the exercises prescribed by Steiner. Firstly, during the uh, probation period, the student is told to contemplate the forces of nature towards birth and death. To see those same forces operating within himself The student is told to hear in the sounds of nature an outpouring of emotion and to identify his own emotion with them. Why? So that the student begins to see his self as part of a larger connected process beyond his physical body. Next, during the Enlightenment period, he is told to recognize the emotions elicited by objects in the world to see that they somehow impress upon our souls. He's told to contemplate the potential within a seed, which is invisible, but is continually unfolding into being. Why? So that the student realizes that there are realities which impact us without physical causes, and thereby call attention to the fact that there is a non-physical aspect to ourselves and to the world. And finally, during the initiation period, the final task becomes recognizing that all of reality, including the spiritual, forms a perfect unity, as Steiner calls it, of which you and I are a part. We are part of the unfolding of the cosmos. We are the perfect unity, the mystical oneness. We begin with the feeling of awe, in order to come outside of ourselves. And in so doing, we see the divine perspective, the unity of all. From this, we come slowly to identify with the oneness, to outgrow ego, as it were, and to become the God we've always been.
0: Well, there you have it. That's One Avenue Explored. But infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties. But I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.